0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the issue of aid sent to Ukraine and how some of the weapons also sent to that country maybe end up in places they were not intended. Also going to be talking about the recent inauguration of the progressive left administration of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez in Colombia. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls, But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, U.S. President Joseph Biden, who apparently couldn't put on a suit jacket and a brisk wind without his wife Jill's help, there is no way this man is fit to run for president in 2024. But that's an aside. He has sent his top diplomats on a tour of Africa. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken went to South Africa yesterday, moving on to Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda later on this week. But this little junket isn't to make nice with African leaders and talk about trade deals. Oh, no, it's basically to threaten them to not do business with Russia and China. Blinken's visits come after the recent tour by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Librov, who visited Egypt, Uganda, Ethiopia, and the Republic of Congo in July, and not wanting to be left out of the action. French President Emmanuel Macron recently visited Cameroon, Benin, and Guinea-Bissau in an attempt to revitalize France's relations with its former colonies. They really should just stop. On Monday in Pretoria, South Africa, Blinken said in a nice little speech that the rest of the world should no longer dictate to African nations and outlined the Biden administration's priorities for the continent, such as supporting investments, security, COVID recovery, clean energy, and democracy. African nations have been treated as instruments of other nations' progress rather than the authors of their own, Blinken said. Nice words and all, Anthony, but the fact is that plenty of folks on the continent are not buying what the U.S. is selling or trying to sell with those empty platitudes, especially since those words haven't come with any actual investment in any of those things, unlike China with its massive belt and road initiative. But it's not just me sitting here throwing shade. Blinken's South African counterpart, Minister of International Relations Naledi Pandor, repeated her criticism of the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act, which is currently going through the U.S. Congress. Pandor criticized the bill yesterday, saying that it could punish African countries for not aligning with the U.S. on the subject of Ukraine. Introduced by Democratic representative from New York, Gregory W. Meeks, who was chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the legislation does indeed act as a vehicle to punish African nations that do business with Russia and came on the heels of the vote in the United Nations to condemn Russia for its response in Ukraine, where half of those countries that abstained from that vote were African nations. In Meek's statement about his bill he said quote this bill enlists the resources of the state department and other federal agencies to examine the russian federation's malign activities in africa and hold those complicit in these activities to account the united states will not sit by and watch putin's war machine attempt to gain strength to the detriment of fragile states in africa and elsewhere end quote Meeks and the U.S. Congress aren't concerned about fragile African states or any such thing, especially since it is U.S. and Western imperialist policies that cause African states to be fragile in the first place. No, what they want is complete obeisance to the U.S. war machine. And his being an African-American, that's Gregory Meeks, I mean, doesn't make him any less of an imperialist. This hypocrisy is certainly not lost on the leaders of African nations who are receiving Blinken and other U.S. officials like Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who warned African countries that there were red lines that they should not cross ahead of her visits to Ghana and Uganda last week. She said that, quote, countries can buy Russian agricultural products, including fertilizer and wheat, but she added if a country decides to engage with Russia where there are sanctions, then they are breaking those sanctions. We caution countries not to break those sanctions because then they stand the chance of having actions taken against them. But but wait, I thought her boss Blinken said that the rest of the world should not dictate to African nations any longer. Oh, that's right. When the U.S. says the rest of the world, it doesn't mean itself. The U.S. reserves the right to dictate to everyone all the time. It's really a bad look, though, when a literal U.S. puppet dictator like Uganda's Yoweri Museveni actually calls the U.S. out on its hypocrisy. Museveni tweeted, if they really want to help Africa, they should consider separating us from the sanctions in a war where we are not participating. And his tweet carried a picture of himself with Ms. Thomas Greenfield. The shade, oh, the shade from a whole agent of U.S. imperialism in Uganda, no less. Meanwhile, the U.S. Congress is sitting by watching the U.S. war machine give Ukraine all the weapons and military support it could ever want. Well, actually, they're voting on allowing them to do this, to continue to fight this proxy war against Russia for the U.S. and NATO, right down to the last Ukrainian. But has the gall to make attempts to punish African nations for not going along with this U.S. imperialist bloody war theater. As the world wakes up to the reality that most of those weapons are actually being sold on the black market, it's just a matter of time before people start to make the connections between all those weapons not getting to the plucky Ukrainian army and the reality that the war was lost to Russia a while ago and the Western media has been lying about it all for months. I don't know how the rest of Blinken's visit to the African nations will go. But if the comments from Naledi, Pandora are any indication, the U.S. isn't going to get any more support from the continent than they have, which is not a whole lot. Pandora maintained South Africa's refusal to criticize Russia for its invasion of Ukraine and went even further in a press briefing following her meeting with Blinken by criticizing the U.S. and other Western powers for focusing on the Ukraine conflict to the detriment of other international issues. She said, quote, we should be equally concerned at what is happening to the people of Palestine, as we are with what is happening to the people of Ukraine. The shade coming from the continent is strong. Follow LukeMon Nation on Patreon.com slash LukeMon Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you, a listen to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie LukeMon. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World Show on Radio Justice L.A. Don, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for asking me. Absolutely. And Don, an interesting development here uh, from CBS that actually uh, uh, posted a kind of retraction to uh, a a tweet that was promoting their documentary Arming Ukraine, where they quote uh, the founder of a nonprofit called Blue Yellow, Jonas Omans, who assessed in late April that only about 30 percent of aid being sent to Ukraine was actually reaching the front lines. And this is an interesting twist because it seems that under Uh, pressure, they actually retracted, I mean, something that was true. And they amended it later to say that although that may have been the case in April, that according to this person, that the, uh, uh, you know, apparently everything was moving to the front lines as they should. But I feel like this speaks to an issue that uh, a lot of people that have been following the Ukraine war closely have been pointing out this very issue of just this absolute avalanche of money and weapons being sent to Ukraine that. Perhaps ending up in places where Washington didn't intend. Uh, but how are you seeing all this, Don?
2: Well, I don't assume that Washington didn't intend it. Uh, we're mm. talking about people that ran the Iran Contra deal that have been doing all kinds of drug smuggling from Colombia and elsewhere, for, you know, for many decades. Um, that you know, I remember Cynthia McKinney uh, back in crisis; she was in Congress. 2007, I think, was the last time having grilling Rumsfeld about where's the missing $2 trillion. And they've since had, you know, three quarters of a trillion dollars every year just on budget. And I'm sure they can't account for it. So, you know, when they suddenly start saying, hey, let's cut out an additional uh, 40, 50, 60 billion bucks and send it to some guys that last year, Trump was saying had some crooked stuff going on. Gee, maybe some of it's going to fall off the truck. I'm not surprised at all.
1: Yeah, I mean especially since the 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 person quoted in this uh CBS uh documentary that they actually pulled their tweet in support of uh, this Jonas Omen uh, of this nonprofit Blue Yellow said that only about 30% of the aid was reaching the front lines of Ukraine. I mean, where is the rest of it going? I mean, what, what could we be expecting to see all of these billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in not just aid, but military weaponry equipment, rocket launchers, all kinds of fun armaments that are not reaching the front lines of Ukraine? Where could we be seeing that show up now, Don?
2: Well, you have a number of things that are, you know, cooking at one time on the stove, so to speak. Uh, one is just outright, you know, graft, corruption, and theft. You're going to hand, hand over $40 billion to someone. There's a long food chain of people that are taking a slice of it. That's assuming that all of the uh, funds and, and material go to the intended parties, you know, to the officially intended parties. Now you have also illegal wars going on in Yemen and in Syria and God knows where else. I don't want to spend a half an hour listing them. Um, that of course you can't budget for these things because it's they're illegal. Uh, and so, and in addition to that, you have you know the likely prospect at the moment of a change in Congress. Not that the Republicans taking over are going to be any less warlike. But they might not focus on the wars that Democrats want. They might want to focus on their own wars. And so you have to start stockpiling weapons and allocating those things uh, to people. And in addition to that, you've got, an, you know, let's say a, an unofficial occupation force in Libya that you have to arm. I mean, you know, Giannis are people, too, and they need guns. Um, and there's a whole lot of places where they can't go in— to the president and, and and have a conversation with the OMB and, you know, go through the whole process about, please, we need uh, 2.5 billion for that and 3.3 for that because they're illegal. And again, these things end up filling those gaps. They know what they're doing. I mean, we're the ones that are in, in the dark here. All we know is we're paying for a lot of stuff. People are getting killed all over the place. Most of it is illegal and nobody's doing anything about it. That's what we know.
0: Yeah. And one place we know where these weapons are ending up are uh, the dark net where, you know, a lot of these kinds of illegal uh, uh, purchases and trades are made. There was actually a journalist, I believe, with Sputnik Arabic that uh, uh, actually went uh, well undercover in a sense, sort of uh, portraying himself to be um, a Houthi Yemen fighter and found himself on the weapons Ukraine uh, page on the thief marketplace. It's literally called the thief. Marketplace, in all caps. I don't know if that's an acronym or whatever. Now, Weapons Ukraine, it claims to be based in Kiev and says that it has conducted 32 successful deals, a confirmed by a guarantor, which is uh, basically a middleman. And uh, the shop owner, uh, they offer M4S assault rifles that come straight from a U.S. arm suppliers that the Pentagon sells for between $600 and 1200 but this person sells for twenty. $400. And so, you know, these things are stolen. So, of course, you know, they're free in that sense, although I wouldn't doubt there's some sort of cost involved in there as well at a huge markup and just getting most of uh, uh, the profit. And so, you know, this person got in contact with a dealer and kind of started the the process of getting uh, some weapons and, you know, got deep enough in the process to find that, you know, they were shipping these uh, weapons in oil barrels and things like this. It's pretty incredible. And although it it isn't uh, clear at this point just how much uh, or how many weapons have come from this particular store, um, given what they're claiming and the capacity of the oil barrels, uh, it's safe to estimate, according to this piece, that the online shop may have sold as many as 6,400 rifles and 12,800 grenades worldwide. And now when you think of all the different elements uh, uh, around this earth that might be interested in those things. Of weapons. I mean, it it paints, frankly, a a scary picture of uh, uh, just what might be happening here, Don. But it becomes even worse when you realize that uh, all of this weapon and military aid is was really intended to continue to extend this this Ukraine war, which the U.S. knows cannot be won militarily. They know that Russia cannot be um, uh, defeated um, in this whole process, despite what they tell the rest of us here in the United States. And so basically out of a, a deep desire to carry on this proxy war to try to uh, further contain and encircle Russia, uh, uh, the U.S. government could literally be creating a, a, a really dangerous situation uh, across the planet.
2: Yeah, that's all true. Absolutely. Um, you know in, in an immediate sense, if if you look at their goal of destabilizing, they, they want to conquer Russia, okay They want to take it over, they want th- the government to implode so they can walk in, finish the job they started in the early 90s that they had almost concluded uh, right before Yeltsin resigned and died. Um, and that is to uh, break the country up into pieces and uh, own the resources and have control over the labor and, uh, and general markets there. Um, you know, towards that end, if you look around, you know, they have been trying to take Belarus and Kazakhstan. It was last year, the year before you had uh, an attempted color revolution in each one. Uh, that is, uh, you know, the last two uh, buffers, really, uh, you know, from the, the entire western and, and southwestern uh, border of the Russian Federation. Uh, you have uh, an exciting of the uh, fighting again in Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, you have various attempts to uh, excite uh, Georgia. Um, and so, you know, if you have all of these weapons disappearing from view, uh, you can bet that what's intended is for some of them to show up, you know, in these various places. Now, you know, go back to Iran-Contra for a minute. Uh, people talk about Khashoggi that was, uh, you know, given the uh, the hamburger treatment and, and the embassy, uh, in you know, here. Uh, but uh, actually, Adnan Khashoggi was one of the brokers in the midst of that, of the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, this, there are people that are like the middleman brokers, uh, you know, that handle all these illicit deals. And there was so much business that just this one, Adnan Khashoggi, when he died, had something like four or five billion dollars in his estate. And so, you know, if you think about maybe a dozen of those characters running around, you know, just doing regular business. And now you start pushing another 40, 50, 60, 70 billion dollars, plus whatever's coming out of Europe and God knows where else, Japan or whatever, through this, you know, sausage machinery. Uh, You have no idea where it's going to end up. But there's certainly the apparatus to conduct this business, you know, at the ready.
1: And, you know, it's not as if. In this situation with uh, all of this weaponry being sold on the black market in Ukraine, it's not as if a lot of the, the outlets are even involving, you know, these kind of high level third party entities that you mentioned. I mean, there is literally... Something called a Weapons Ukraine website on the Thief Marketplace. This is not even a joke. It actually is called the Thief Marketplace. I always say that I'm not sure that the dark web is a real place, but Mm. apparently it is. I'm just glad I don't know how to get there. But I mean, it is this simple for... Uh, This group of people that says they're based in Kiev um, has uh, made 32 successful deals confirmed by a guarantor of M4S assault rifles that came from the U.S., all kinds of other uh, military weaponry, 6,400 rifles, 12,800 grenades worldwide. I mean, so... Again, aside from Putin's uh, 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 declaration that Ukraine has to be denazified, we've been saying that's true. It seems that what he said about uh, all of this weaponry being poured into Ukraine, showing up everywhere else in the world in places where the U.S. doesn't want it to show up, that's turning out to be true, too, Don. Yeah. Well, (laughs) look— You have two models
2: basically that are operating in the world right now. Um, one ascending apparently, and the other uh, descending apparently. We have, uh, you know, the Eurasian project, if you want to call it that. Essentially, uh, Eurasia, the Africa, Latin America, um, you know, all things that are not under the thumb directly of, of uh, the United States and the EU, um, and Japan and 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 Southern Korea. Uh, they benefit. The, the The empire benefits from chaos, and and the, the rising, uh, you know, opposition to the empire, benefits from you know stability. We want to build our economies. We want we want peace. We want prosperity. We're building something, and it's an alternative to colonialism, basically, imperialism, and war. And We want to keep our position as the hegemon or the attempted hegemon. And in order to stop you from doing what you're doing, we like chaos. And so if we spread weapons wherever, unintended consequences or not, chaos is our intended consequence. And we benefit from it, and you don't. And I think it breaks down almost to the atomic level there. Certainly some people in, that are doing policy making believe that. And that's what's driving this, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's the case. And I'm also thinking about how I feel like more and more people in the United States are growing resentful of the fact that $40 billion of their tax money is going to this conflict in Ukraine, which they very well may feel some sympathy for. But they also feel some sympathy for their pocketbooks, which are uh, increasingly getting hit more and more and more as uh, prices go up. But the U.S. doesn't seem uh, too keen. Its government doesn't seem too keen in uh, bailing out or helping out its people in the way that it uh, seems interested in, you know, carrying out yet another war effort that the U.S. and the West seem to want to go on, I mean, in perpetuity, you know what I mean? I mean, it just seems like at this point that the West uh, uh, intends to keep this conflict going, to keep this uh, war up uh, in a proxy sense which with Russia, which, of course, just increases uh, uh, the likelihood of some kind of incident that could trigger um, an outright conflict with Moscow that would have a devastating impact on humanity. And so as such, we see that the imperialists, uh, the ruling class, care more about holding on to hegemonic control literally more than they care about our lives here in this country and certainly more than they care about the lives of folks all around the world. And as such, I think people in this country particularly uh, should take up our duty to organize against the machine that's... That, if it isn't stopped, could very well destroy us all. But we thank you so much, Don, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and watch D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
3: By Any Means Necessary.
0: newly inaugurated government in Colombia, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by James Patrick Jordan, national co-coordinator for the Alliance for Global Justice. James, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Great to be here again.
0: Absolutely, And James, of course, here recently, these the progressive left administration of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez in Colombia have taken their oath and basically been sworn in as the new president and vice president, respectively, of Colombia. And this was a pretty uh, grand ceremony. I mean, there was a sword of Bolivar that was uh, uh, presented, of course, uh, different visiting heads of state and things like that. They received congratulations and well wishes from uh, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. I mean, one really gets uh, uh, the feeling of a change that appears to be about to come over that country, which is a really significant, I think, and really where I'd like to begin our conversation today, because we're talking about a country when we look at Colombia that for at least the last 70 years has had a kind of uh, a conservative approach. A government that has had a serious negative impact on its people. I would argue all the way down to uh, uh, former President Yvonne Duque. So I was hoping you could help us understand, James, some of the history of Colombia up until this point that makes the uh, Petro and Marquez uh, new administration so significant.
4: Well, let's start with the history that's a story of Bolivar that they handed over to. Um inaugurate as ceremonially to do to inaugurate president petro it amused me of course because of course that sword had actually been stolen at one point or others might say liberated by the m19 guerrilla group way back when (laughs) and of course uh, petro started out as a member of the m19 so it was kind of a coming full circle for that sword there but uh No, it was very, very exciting. Uh, The crowd was uh, obviously just in in rapture with what was going on and and excited excited about the possibilities for real change. Um, It's not going to be an easy task. It's not going to be an easy task at all. But I just want to say on a personal basis, I was looking at the cabinet, uh, the minister of labor. I I've met. Three of the cabinet members, and two of them, I know, you know, somewhat well. But the the new leader, uh, minister for for work, the work labor minister, is a member of the Colombian Communist Party. Uh, The minister of culture, Patricia, uh, recently, I may be getting her last name wrong, but she had been a member of the Young Communists in her youth. Uh, two of the ministers, uh, Irene Veles Torres is uh, someone I have known and, and worked with. Uh, she's the producer of the Bajo Fuego documentary about what's the violence in the north of Calca, the political violence in an area that we know very well, and she's the new minister of Mines and Energy, and Susana Muhammad is the new minister of the environment, and she was a city councilor here in Bogota, and I have met with her to discuss issues of police brutality. So I just want to say on a personal basis, from what I'm seeing, I'm seeing blocks uh, put in place that are very significant, very progressive, and I'm excited, but it's not going to be easy at all, and uh, people should be realistic and pragmatic about um, what they can expect and what we must work for um, and and what popular movements must work for to make sure this administration has success.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the case, that it will not be easy, particularly since the Biden administration signaled uh, before the election that he would support uh, the former right wing government of uh, Ivan Duque uh, should he need any support. And we know that the U.S. government has funded uh, the brutal, repressive uh, police state uh, in uh, Colombia for years under the guise of of uh supporting them uh against uh narco trafficking and uh, of course overtly saying that they were you know supporting them to fight against the leftist uh Uh, movements that were active against the right-wing government. So in regard to that drug policy, that is a problem. Um, The new administration has said that it wants to work with the United States government to come to some peaceable agreement for how to address uh, this issue of uh, the drug policy that has caused so much uh, trouble in Colombia that the West supports. What do you think that will look like uh, with this new government? Well,
4: again, I'm excited uh, about the possibilities. By the way, Jacqueline, I believe that you were in Colombia shortly after one of the uh, national strikes, if I'm not mistaken. I, was. I Right, and I imagine you have a real good view of the similarities and the links between police brutality in, in Colombia and police brutality in the United States, and those are links that we need to keep making because they're strong, and they're, of course, very related to the drug war. But what excited me yesterday in the inauguration speech was that uh, President Petro spoke at some length about the, the the complete failure of any kind, and just a complete, uh, I, I can only think of the word in Spanish, uh, of the drug war. It, it, it is a lie, and he wants to end it. You know, and I don't think that the U.S. administration is happy about that at all. But we have to understand that this drug war, it hasn't only been bad for Colombia. It's been bad for the world. It's been bad for the U.S. But the drug war, it's never been actually about narco-trafficking. We have to understand that the drug war is the excuse for funding repression, all kinds of repression, all over the world, including the spread of the U.S. mass incarceration model. It's drug war monies that were used by the U.S. to help set up a school to train agents of the Saudi uh, Arabian prison system, which is, of course, notoriously an abuser of human rights and of prisoner rights. And, of course, that drug war funding, according to the State Department, Saudi Arabia plays no significant role in narco-trafficking, yet drug war funding uh, uh, promotes the Saudi Arabian prison system. It's the same in Colombia. It's the same all over the world. That money is not used to fight drugs. That money is used to support repression. In Colombia, most of the people that go to jail for narco-trafficking through the U.S.-funded jails are women growing small plots of coca, perhaps more often than not for traditional uses, or because they're small plots that are being bought by narco-traffickers because there's no rural development, no infrastructure to get other crops to market. But that the drug war money is not sending the big narco-traffickers to jail. It's protecting them. Instead, it's going after women. Instead, it's going after peasants. Instead, it's going for... For oppression, and I've seen this. I've spoken about this on this program before. When I've traveled in the Naya area, where you can see miles and miles of coca plantations—not not not small crops grown by families, but miles and miles of coca uh, plantations, uh, interspersed with military uh, stocks, with military, uh, you know, little bases on the—not bases, but little. Checkpoints, military checkpoints along the routes where the coca is being grown. The drug war has never had anything to do with stopping drugs. If anything, it protects narco traffickers. It's always about repression, and Petro knows this. And we need to start not just about US Colombia, but we need to have a worldwide struggle against the drug war in the drug war now.
0: Definitely, and you know what you were just saying, James. Uh, you know, really makes me wonder because for a long time, Colombia served in a position that some described as, you know, the the Israel of uh, uh, Latin America, sort of an outpost of U.S. interest and imperialism in the region. And as of now, uh, I mean, this uh, Gustavo Marquez administration seems like it's going to be heading in the complete uh, opposite direction of that kind of dynamic, and so. I mean, we don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think uh, this kind of government will mean for relations between uh, uh,
4: Colombia and the U.S.? Well, it's going to be difficult because uh, it's, it's very difficult, and I, I, I can't predict, that it's going to be next impossible to just cut ties with the U.S. and to end Colombia's status as a colony, basically a military colony of the Pentagon. That's going to be a struggle that's going to have to continue to and continue, and I have faith that Petro and uh, Marquez will do what they can to make progress. But this is going to be a long-term struggle that we all need to be involved in, and I can tell you this much: that uh, Petro's success, his election, Marquez's election, happened because of the huge popular movements in Colombia, and as long as they stay with the popular movements, and the popular movements stay with them. And as long as there's international solidarity, especially in the U.S., which is the source of so much bad that happens in Colombia, as long as that the administration is backed up by the people and backed up by solidarity activists, progress can be made. But it is not going to be easy, and I'm sure the U.S. is going to do everything it can to co-opt, pressure and undermine and even try to get rid of this administration if they don't tow the U.S. line. It's not going to be easy, but what Colombia has shown us is that the long-haul struggle can, resist, can win victories. We must not give up, no matter how dark it might get, and we must move forward with hope and expectation
0: Definitely, and you know, I was hoping you could say more, James, about um, the importance of the social movements in this process and uh, the role they played in uh, the Petro Marquez campaign. I mean, what did that look like, and why uh, did they get that kind of support from these social movement elements? So
4: again, I think uh, I think Jacqueline probably has a good view of that too from having visited here, but I was here in twenty nineteen a huge uh, popular strike then from, from the beginning through, I was here for six weeks during that popular strike. And it turned out literally millions of people into the streets all over Colombia. And then there was the uprising against uh, police brutality in Bogota in September of 2020. And then again, the huge popular strike of 2021. And what I see is a popular movement that is broad- it cuts across many political lines, and it is a popular movement that seems to be have grasped its own power. And it, it's a popular movement that has suffered so much, seen so much war and violence, that they had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And I think that is what made, even made it possible for Petro to, to get elected, to even run. Is because he was running, literally, he was riding the wave of popular movements. And I think as long as Petro and Marcus remember that their strength comes from the people, from the basis, they will accomplish much. I I just think the popular movements right now are the most powerful force in Colombia today. And I hope the popular movements will continue to realize that. And we have so much to learn from them in the United States, by the way.
0: Well, that's a fact. Well, we thank you so much, James, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. As always, great to be back with you both. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, it was recently announced that Amazon has agreed to acquire uh, the iRobot vacuum cleaner maker for approximately $1.7 billion, as uh, it appears to be a part of Amazon's move to uh, sort of uh, uh, deepen its uh, uh, services, if you will, or products through, you know, the kind of home space aspect of things. And, you know, this includes... uh, 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 you know, the, the Roomba and things like that. Now, personally, I don't care for things like the Roomba. It's kind of like having a very small uh, self-driving car in your house. And that's just not really my thing. But I think there's some real implications for where Amazon as a company is really trying to head here, given the context, not only of this acquisition, but of uh, some other moves we've been seeing to make lately. But I mean, what do you see as the ripple effects of all this, Chris?
5: Yeah, this is a really, really interesting acquisition to me and not one that I think many people saw coming. You know, $1.7 billion for what is effectively a high-tech vacuum cleaner manufacturer, Uh, you know, doesn't necessarily seem like the kind of thing Amazon would want to spend that kind of money on, but ultimately, when you think about the company itself, uh, in terms of Amazon, it actually makes sense. I mean, look, I'll, I'll admit, I have a Roomba sitting next to me under my desk, and when you've got uh, a bunch of animals running around, they're very useful. <laughs> Thankfully, mine doesn't have a camera, it doesn't have any microphones, uh, it doesn't connect to me, it doesn't have Wi-Fi. So, I'm feeling good about keeping my Roomba, but I would be very, very concerned about buying a new one at this point, certainly after uh, Amazon starts releasing new features. Because what is Amazon if not a, a data and surveillance company? Like, I feel like we talk almost every week about you know Ring or Amazon Web Services or one of their other uh, ways that Amazon is just involved in all sorts of surveillance of us from what we're buying online to who's at our door or walking down the street from us uh, to who's using our Wi-Fi even. So when we look at that, you know, a lot of these newer Roomba products uh, from iRobot, they can actually scan the layout of your room. So they're not doing, you know, that funny thing you see on TikTok videos where they just kind of bang into the couch or into the wall and get stuck and you got to pick them up and, you know, move them around. Um, which certainly mine does that, uh, you pick it up, you turn it around, it keeps going. Look, so they're starting to map out your room, you know, to kind of get a sense of, okay, you know what? I'm going to be smarter next time. And that's cool. That's fine. I think that's a good use of that kind of technology. The problem is when you start handing it over to Amazon, what is Amazon going to do with that kind of information? Right. This is a surveillance company that tries to collect as much data as possible about every single little aspect of our lives. Are they getting into healthcare, care, into finances, into literally like home layout now? Um, and that's really the concern that I think we need to have when we're looking at what Amazon is trying to do in a $1.7 billion purchase, because they're not doing this just because they like the product. They're doing this because they see at least $1.8 billion of value coming back to them.
1: Certainly, and even before uh, this acquisition by Amazon, the the people who created the uh, Roomba, um, the, uh, a group of folks from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology—that's right, MIT—actually uh, were able to create Roomba because of profits from defense contract. So it's not a leap for us to be very, very worried that Amazon could go farther with what uh, the folks at MIT were already doing and collaborating with the Department of Defense and also local police to really map out our homes, Chris, using now the Amazon iRobot Roomba.
5: Certainly. So let's think about Uh, A story that we had talked about a couple weeks ago, that being that uh, Amazon says that they will give police on an emergency request uh, video from a Ring camera device without any kind of legal order. Would that also apply to the... House, the home mapping that a newer Roomba can do? Is that going to be something stored on your Amazon account in such a way that uh, Amazon can hand it over to police or to advertisers? You know, how many bedrooms do you have? Uh, how many bathrooms do you have? Things like that. I mean, it, is this information something that Amazon is going to be storing in such a way that it is identifiable to you? And producible to anyone else upon request. And those are the questions that need to be answered. Frankly, you know, Amazon doesn't really answer these questions until they've found a way to make the service appear to be Useful to you. So maybe they're going to say, oh, now that you've got your Roomba, we're going to help you figure out where to put this new piece of furniture you're buying on Amazon, right? But that would tell us then that they are, in fact, storing that kind of information. This is speculation, but I don't think it's way out of the blue to consider that Amazon is going to start using uh, the information it's getting from the Roomba uh, devices for things like that. Uh, We should also say Amazon had at one point tried to kind of do some drones of its own, like home security drones. Those never really took off. They didn't really – nothing really kind of came of that. There were some demos. There were some interesting videos. Uh, But I think the idea that people had of an Amazon drone flying around inside their home as part of a home security system was a little too much right now for very good reason. So now instead of flying around, it's just going to be crawling around your floor.
0: Yeah, and there's another level of this, I think, too, Chris, because, like we say, this um, deal to Get iRobot was $1.7 million back in 2017. We know Amazon acquired Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. Um, and just last month, the company said that it was going to buy One Medical, a primary care provider that's valued around $3.9 billion, which seems like it could be Amazon's entree. In into the healthcare field, which is frankly terrifying of an idea to me. But the thing of it is, Chris, is that we're talking about this massive company, Amazon, that is just expanding its reach in all these different areas—from our actual homes where we live to our healthcare, to where we buy grocery stores, or even Amazon—you know, marketplaces and things like that. We certainly have some here in D.C. and in the area, and us, uh, 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 you know, folks who sort of track these sorts of things I think are quite concerned about the possibility of you know Amazon becoming a sort of a a real monopoly you know what I mean and even the implications of that I think could be quite troublesome on a number of levels.
5: Yeah certainly I mean I'm glad you mentioned Whole Foods because again that was another one of those why would Amazon want to buy this? Uh, You know why is Amazon getting into the grocery business? But Amazon ultimately, you know, it's, it's difficult as somebody who started, you know, buying books from Amazon online in the late nineties, you know, it's hard to, to remember how this, how this moved from a, an online bookstore to uh, a company that is literally tracking every single thing you're doing online, running, you know, half of the internet, owning grocery stores, bodegas. Uh, actually, I want to insult bodegas by conflating them with Amazon Go. You know, grocery stores, convenience stores. Uh, you know, all of those kind of services. Getting into medical, um, even running in some places their own schools. They're basically sponsoring school systems, um, and they have Amazon classes. And this is in you know poor areas of, of Texas and I believe uh, New Mexico as well. So really, Amazon wants to be that one giant conglomerate that controls the entire world. And they they are really positioning themselves to do that one acquisition at a time. Um, And, you know, their primary business in the eyes of most people as far as most people are concerned is getting those shipments, you know, getting that stuff that you ordered in two days and maybe getting a reminder about prime TV and then things like that. But that's not really what Amazon is about anymore. Uh, and it's something we do need to, you know, it, it is this slippery slope, right? At what point do we say Amazon has gone too far because it can be, all right, well, it's whole foods and then it's one medical and then it's uh, iRobot, and then it's this or that or a bank or whoever. And all the while, they have been collecting all of this information on us, putting it all together into, uh, you know, a profile on us, selling it to advertisers, handing it over to law enforcement and the government. Um, and that's why it's it's we have to not we have to you know look at the whole picture when we're looking at any one of these particular uh acquisitions or moves and we have to say you know what it's not about just this one it's about the direction this is going and that's why we have to put a stop to these things it's not that amazon purchasing irobot itself is the worst thing that's ever going to happen it's that we are allowing amazon to become this giant monopoly conglomeration that is going to continue to grow in this way in a way that is detrimental to not just amazon workers but to really the rest of the world
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And what you said about a slippery slope and how we are basically allowing uh, Amazon to just take us all the way down the slippery slope uh, to a a place that we really don't want to be. I feel like that's already happened with the way that uh, laptops are used to surveil students in classrooms. I mean, you know, students are going back to school or about to go back to school. Um, There was a lot of scrutiny during During the COVID-19 pandemic where students were... engaged in at home schooling, uh, remote learning, and there was a need to have that technology to to have kids to have uh, be able to have that remote access to their classrooms. But now that technology still seems to be in place and it's still surveilling students. So what what is the the update on the way devices that were used to help students learn uh, during the pandemic are now being used to surveil students? Still,
5: yeah, I mean, these surveillance companies, education surveillance companies, made a whole lot of money during the pandemic when they convinced school systems that they needed to use their services in order to protect students and teachers and whatnot, and, and help with remote learning at a time when you know everyone was having a really difficult time adjusting. Uh, but of course, they don't want to give up that money now that schools are going back in person. Uh, especially as we come into the the new school year in the next month or so. So some of these pieces of software, I mean, they'll monitor everything that a student is doing on their school-issued computer. Uh, So if you're browsing the Internet, your teacher can watch everything that you're doing on screen. Instead of basically having like a Zoom window with 20 people on there, the teacher can see a Zoom window with 20 desktops and what everyone is doing on their computer, send a message to a student and say, hey, you should be focusing, or even take over the screen and close a window or redirect them. But worse than that, this also happens when the student is at home. So even if you're not in school, this software, and even if the teacher isn't monitoring it in real time, the software is still running. So there's an example uh, that was given where students were charging their phones by plugging them into a school computer. These are their personal phones, but they plugged them into a school computer to charge, and the school computer was reading the text messages that they were sending to each other through their personal phones, and then alerting the students and the school district about the contents of those messages. Uh, this is not something that was happening in school. It was not happening on a school device. It was just because the phone was plugged into the school computer at the student's home that this happened. So this isn't even a a matter of the teacher walking up and down the aisle catching you passing a note. This is a surveillance panopticon watching students everywhere. Because there are other systems that also are used by school districts that monitor a student's personal social media. They Monitor search results and social media hits for, for the school and for students' names. So students are still being surveilled at this astounding rate. And they're, you know, that started out during the pandemic, which was also a violation of privacy, for, by the way, for not just the student and the teachers, but anyone else who lived in their homes. Because if you're, if you're doing schooling at home during a pandemic or whatever it is, that camera is going to uh, catch other people around you the microphone is going to catch the conversations that your siblings or parents or whoever else is in your home uh, are having. And that is an issue that was not nearly talked about enough during the pandemic. So we're seeing these companies, and this is what it comes down to, right? These private companies who made a killing during the pandemic by offering surveillance tools are actually now saying, you know, you still need us. Uh, We're going to actually help you ramp up your surveillance of students, not just at home, but also in the classroom itself and online in between.
0: Yeah, it's pretty wild. Another piece I wanted to touch on with you today, Chris, was a U.S. federal court recently confirmed that AI systems, um, artificial intelligence systems cannot patent inventions because they're not humans. Now, I'm not even sure uh, how this came up, but I was hoping you could explain like what's happening here and just what it all means.
5: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those uh, at least it didn't get worse kind of situations (laughs) the way I see it. You know, there's uh, basically a a person who is Stephen Fowler who has been trying to copyright and patent um, some of the stuff that his own software, his AI software, has created. And the courts have uh, have been saying, no, you can't do that. Patent law says that only people, individuals, can hold a patent. Uh, In fact, the Supreme Court said that an individual ordinarily means a human being, a person, you know, how we use the word in everyday parlance. So an AI program can't be an individual. Uh, They are not self-aware, no matter what, you know, some Google engineers are trying to convince us or, you know, metaverse uh, directors are trying to tell us. Um, You know, it is still software that takes an input and an output from whatever a person has fed it. So the entire patent system is extremely broken. Uh, You know, the idea of being able to protect just an idea that you have had from somebody else implementing it, because you had the idea first, is completely broken. Uh, patent trolls often sue small companies into oblivion uh, for violating, you know, patents that seem extremely obvious. For something like a one-click checkout, for example, um, that you see on Amazon, all the, you know, that started out on Amazon, or they say they own it. Um, things like that. Things like, you know, just saying that we're going to take this Series of steps, whether it's software or a process or whatever it is, and we're going to own the way this works, uh, really stifles innovation in a system, capitalism, that actually claims that it promotes innovation. But if you can't do a basic thing, if somebody can claim, I own this basic process, like one-click checkout, um, then you're preventing other people from you know being able to to actually innovate and actually use what is really common knowledge so the the fact that we can't just have a computer program whether it's ai or not come up with ideas and processes and algorithms and then have them filed for patents, it's actually a good thing. It's not uh, taking down the entire patent and trademark system that really needs not just a reform, but a complete reversal. But it's a good step that the court has ruled this way so that uh, the situation isn't getting worse much faster.
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there, but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, August 9th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash Radio, click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on Sputnik.mave, that's M A V E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial in 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 PM Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash. B A M necessary. The chat is live, and remember, friends, at 3:20 p.m. Eastern today. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world, and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most
0: certainly do. We most certainly do. When at the top of the hour today, as as I'm sure people are aware, the FBI raided Trump's home Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Uh, They executed uh, the search warrant today in an act uh, that Trump himself called political persecution. Uh, He said in a statement, quote, my beautiful home Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, is currently under siege, raided and occupied by a large group of FBI agents and of course uh, within this statement was a link for donations to his political action committee. Can't let uh, you know a good outrage thing go without uh, trying to get a few bucks off of it. Now uh, this is coming of course on the heels of the Justice Department sort of ramping up the investigation into the uh, attacks on the Capitol January 6, 2021 where of course Donald Trump was trying to halt the confirmation of Joe Biden as As president of the United States uh, by making the claim that now is referred to as the big lie that uh, the Democratic Party stole the election. It isn't totally clear at this point uh, what, you know, they were looking for during the search or what was even examined during the search. According to Trump, uh, the law enforcement officers, quote, even broke into my safe. So. Yeah. And it's funny because now it's triggered like this right wing anti FBI thing that we're seeing happening. Um, uh, weird. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene actually said defund the FBI. That's pretty funny. And then after that, uh, posted a, a picture of an American flag upside down. So this is quite the time we're living in, my friends. Uh, so You know, so uh, any updates with that, we'll definitely let you know. Uh, Jackie, I want to start off today. I don't, I don't know if you heard about this, but a grand jury in Mississippi has declined to indict Carol Bryant Dunham, who is the white woman whose accusations triggered the brutal murder of Emmett Till nearly seventy years ago. Um, uh, a grand jury in Lafleur County, Mississippi, uh, considered evidence and testimony regarding uh, Dunham's involvement in Till death, according to LaFleur County District Attorney Dwayne Richardson. Uh, after hearing more than seven hours of testimonies from witnesses and investigators, the grand jury basically found that there was not enough evidence to indict Dunham, who were considering charges of manslaughter and kidnapping. Now, unfortunately, this uh, uh, makes it even more unlikely that Dunham will ever be prosecuted for her role in uh, uh, the events leading up up to Till's death. And as people may be aware who's been following this, this comes um, on the heels of the discovery of an unserved arrest warrant from uh, that period dealing with Till's death. Also, an unpublished memoir uh, uh, that uh, the Associated Press actually attained last month where Dunham said that she didn't know what was going to happen to Emmett Till. Excuse me. After she made this accusation, of course, Emmett Till, as we know, was uh, from Chicago and was visiting relatives in Mississippi when this happened. And uh, according to Dunham, uh, the men who would go on to kill Till brought him to her in the middle of the night, basically to confirm that that was him. And she said that she tried to help him out by denying that it was him. But as we know, this was not to be uh, of much hope. And of course, uh, Emmett Till's mother uh, making the decision to have an open casket where, you know, you could just see not only the, the just the completely inhuman uh, brutalization and, Uh, of Emmett Till and also the effects of him being thrown in the water, just the deep, uh, how deeply disfigured Emmett Till was. And as many people have pointed out, it was that shocking image that spurred on a lot of people to get involved in the uh, uh, civil rights movement. And, you know, Jackie, this is just, this is just uh, such a statement I feel on a lot of things. I mean, first of all, I think it proves Dr. John Henry Clark Wright when he said that history is a current event. I mean, we think of this as you know, something that happened in a bygone era. All traces of it are gone. It was unfortunate. But hey, what are you going to do? But here we have a really the person I consider uh, the main culprit in all of this. And really, we know that so many lynchings happened because of white women making accusations against black men and sometimes an accusation you know, they didn't even really make an accusation. One was just sort of um, uh, made up whole cloth just out of sheer bloodlust to watch to lynch black men. You know what I mean? And so here we are almost a, a century after the fact. And we're talking about something that uh, I believe, you know, happened uh, uh Oh, wow. I forgot how many years ago. I wanted to say 70 years ago, but I forget it. Yeah, it was nearly 70 years ago. So nearly 70 years ago, almost a century at this point, and still uh, no justice for Emmett Till, even though one of the culprits is still very much alive. And so I just feel like there's a lot there, Jackie, in terms of, you know, the ongoing history of racist vigilante terror. I mean, you know, uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin comes to mind. I mean, certainly violence Uh, violence, racist state violence continues against black people, as we see with the onset of the movement for black lives around uh, uh, Mike Brown and George Floyd and so many others. You know what I mean? And also just how, you know, the court system in this country so often aids and abets this terror because The court system is upheld as, you know, an arbiter of fairness and justice and that, you know, while you might not like the results. It's ultimately the best thing. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, Jackie, it really just shows that, you know, we have no help coming, you know, from the institutions of this racist capitalist system and that we cannot rely on that system to bring about real justice. But that court system, as I just noted, is an outgrowth of capitalism and white supremacy and therefore can hold no uh, uh, real solace or refuge for the poor working and oppressed people of this country.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, Sean. And I, and I, I want to (coughs) read, excuse me, uh, Emmett Till's cousin, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr.'s comments, um, that he made following the grand jury's decision not to indict. He said the decision is unfortunate, but predictable. And this is what he told CBS News. He said the prosecutor tried his best and we appreciate his efforts, but he alone cannot undo hundreds of years of anti-Black systems that guarantee those who killed Emmett Till would go unpunished to this day the fact remains that the people who abducted, tortured, and murdered Emmett did so in plain sight. And our American justice system was and continues to be set up in such a way that they could not be brought to de- justice for their heinous crimes. Exactly echoing what you said, Sean, and I would change one word, not that they could not, that, but they would not. The, this, The way this system is set up ensures that people who commit crimes against folks like us will not be brought to justice. And I think we need to keep this in mind as the Justice Department, the FBI, uh, you know, does a few good things every once in a while, uh, or the court system seems to get something right, you know, with the uh, with the uh, Justice Department going after the cops who killed Breonna Taylor and the uh, private citizens, the vigilantes, who killed Ahmaud Arbery being sentenced to very lengthy sentences in prison. But see... We understand because of the history of this country and these systems that those incidences are the exceptions. They are not the rule. So because we understand that these incidents of the system seeming to uh, mete out justice for injustices committed against us, we should not be surprised at this Uh, refusal to hold the one person left who was literally responsible for the murder of Emmett Till. It was on her word that this little boy uh, whistled at her, that her then husband and his racist friends uh, kidnapped this child from his grandparents' home and lynched him. And and for for her to say so. So first of all, Sean, you know, we we need to understand that, look, the the system that exists in this country never intended to hold those people accountable, just like it never held anybody accountable for all of the other lynchings that occurred uh, in this country of black and uh, other non-European folks. And even even white people who were in solidarity with the struggle for black liberation, that that's one thing. But then the other thing is this idea that uh, uh, Carolyn uh, Dunham didn't know what was going to happen to Emmett Till. Right. I can't cuss on the air right now because, you know, FCC rules and all that. But that is some hogwash. We all know that's hogwash. She didn't have to know the details of every excruciating, horrific thing they were going to do. But living in the South at a time when lynchings were common, lynchings of black men were common, false accusations of rape by by black uh, by white women uh, that caused black men to be lynched were common. She knew that that boy was going to be murdered. Didn't It didn't matter that she didn't know the details. So I think this is just par for the course of what we always say this system is. And I think that we have to move on from expecting anything different from this system. Uh, And certainly we need to stop expecting any kind of justice to come from a system that time and time again shows us that justice is just really not in its uh, standard operating procedure, not when it comes to crimes committed against us, Sean.
0: Definitely. And speaking of lynching, you know, the the Tuskegee Institute uh, has recorded the lynching of 3,446 black people, uh, which occurred between 1882 and 1968. And sometimes I think, because we know that the United States is a country that is historically illiterate and has a very short memory. And so I feel like oftentimes, like we know about the horrors of lynching. But it's not something that rests on our consciousness. But I think for black people especially, it's not something that is so easily forgotten or shaken off. I mean, lynching a black person was, it was a spectacle. It was a social event. It had, they had picnics around it. There are some people who even believe that the word picnic itself uh, is like some kind of poor man toe of, you know, a racial slur and pick one out. You pick a n-word, basically. I personally don't believe that to be true, but I think it shows sort of the pervasiveness of this. And you we've seen the photos of white people pointing and smiling at a hanging black man. And we know that they wouldn't just hang us. They would burn us. They would oftentimes they would take souvenirs, which meant cutting off digits, cutting off ears, cutting off genitals this is i think a good example of just the raw inhumanity of white supremacy that is not a bug it's not an accident of this system it is a deliberate outgrowth of this capitalist system it is a part of the very fabric of what this country is and i'm glad that you raised um the issue of Ahmaud Arberry, Jackie, because that's another good example of a, uh, uh, a racist vigilante attack. And so, as I often say on the show, racist vigilantism and sort of sanctioned state violence have always, and to this day, work hand in glove. And so that's why there's this feeling among elements of white people that they're uh, basically deputized. They may not actually be police. They may not have a badge and uniform, but the mere fact of their whiteness endows them with the right privilege and power to police black people. And see, it's just it's just so hard to have peace in a country where you are a constant object of surveillance. You're, a, you're constantly being criminalized regardless of what you're doing. The most innocent thing that a person can be doing has criminal intent read into it. I'm thinking of Tamir Rice, a child playing with a toy gun and police pulling up and without uttering a mumbling word, shoots and kills this child. We don't talk enough, I think, about how black boys and black children are adultified Mm, mm -hmm. and seen as beasts and adults and, like I say, criminals that are well aware of what they're doing and therefore have to be put down like a beast. You can't even be a child in this country if you're born of a certain race and a certain condition. I'm thinking to what we were discussing the other day about. Palestine and Gaza and how and how many children were killed just in this last attack. Right. Not to mention. All the children, all the human life that has been lost, people slaughtered at the hands of that vicious, racist, settler, colonial apartheid state. Right. So what are we talking about? We're talking about generations of trauma. And if we think that that doesn't trickle down, then we're fooling ourselves. And what I'm really saying, Jackie, is just that the whole of the structure of this white supremacist capitalist system is an affront and an insult and an impediment to our fundamental humanity. You literally are in a position where you can't even feel human. Right? And see This is why, excuse me, this is why we can never fall into the trap of thinking that this system can be reformed or that there can be a kindler, gentler version of this system or that there can be a more humane version of this system. No, it has to be inhumane to operate. Right. You can't you can't commit genocide. And then enslave a people for 200 years if the system is humane. You can't make human beings and women and children into property if the system is humane. You can't uh, bring in immigrants from different parts of the world and brutally exploit their labor if the system is humane. You cannot have a social, political, and economic order that is totally designed and built to protect the interest of a wealthy few while the overwhelming vast majority of poor working and oppressed people suffer if that system is humane. And so, Jackie, in looking at the ongoing, lingering injustice of the Emmett Till case, just like so many others we could speak to, it shows that the only solution to the capitalist system is to overturn it and bring about socialism.
1: That's absolutely true. that's my, my new, I know it's not a new saying, but my new uh 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 saying or theme is look, it's socialism or barbarism, because we've been living under barbarism all this time, this whole time. And the thing, the thing that blows my mind, I think, about The people who continue to prop up this system and the people who continue to push the idea that the system can be reformed and why don't we just settle for those reforms is that they expect those of us who are the primary targets of the barbarism in this system, that the system is propped up upon to just kind of take it with a smile, take it in stride to kind of just, you know, it's, it's. I I know it's bad, but one day it's going to get better. And it just brings to mind Malcolm X's quote about, you know, progress is not having someone who stabbed you in the back and the knife is in nine inches and they pull it out six inches. That's not progress. The knife is still in my back. As long as the system continues to have the power to stab me and take small cuts of my humanity with impunity and without any uh, uh, without any any uh, uh, true justice, without any accountability, then that system wh- why should I just take it on a uh, uh, principle that anybody is going to make that system better when they never did anything about the original, stab wound in the first place. So, so no, no, this, this system must die because if it does not, then the rest of it certainly will. And I think that people are under the mistaken impression that just because they are not in the crosshairs of this system right now, first of all, that's not true. We all are. Uh, but that one day they won't be, uh, squarely in the crosshairs of this of this system because they're not us, Sean. But as things progress, I think they are being proven wrong much, much faster than I hope they are comfortable with.
0: Definitely. And we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202 1320 Myself and Jackie Luqman in here, chopping it up on a lovely Tuesday afternoon. And, you know, Jackie, uh, continuing our conversation, I think it's completely relevant that we talk about Emmett Till here now while we're in Black August. And I wanted to actually play a a clip from a political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal. And this is a commentary that he published on Black August back in 2004, making a lot of relevant historical connections and really Centering struggle in Black August And we have to remember That struggle ultimately is At the core of what Black August is That's why we study That's why we fast That's why we train That's why we fight So that we can be better equipped To operate in struggle But we're going to go to that clip And uh, we'll come right back
3: okay.
0: Here we go as my mama used to say, that
3: now we're cooking with Crisco here. Black August, 2004, for Kila Miyasha. The Honorable Frederick Douglass, former U.S. minister to Haiti, among other things, said back in January of 1893 the following, Among these large bodies, the little community of Haiti, anchored in the Caribbean Sea, has had her mission in the world, and a mission which the world had much need to learn. She has taught the world the danger of slavery and the value of liberty. In this respect, she has been the greatest of all our modern teachers, he said. It was a sweaty, steaming night in August when a group of African captives gathered in the forest of Mondrouge in Le Cap, Saint-Domingue. It was August 1791. Among these men was a voodoo priest, Papa Loa Boukman who preached to his brethren about the need for revolution against the cruel slave drivers and torturers who made the lives of the African captives a living hell. His words, spoken in the common tongue of Creole, would echo down the annals of history and cannot fail but move us today, 213 years later. He said, The God who created the sun, which gives us light, who rouses the waves and rules the storms, Though hidden in the clouds, he watches us. He sees all that the white man does. The God of the white man inspires him with crime. But our God calls upon us to do good works. Our God, who is good to us, orders us to revenge our wrongs. He will direct our arms and aid us. Throw away the symbol of the God of the whites, who has so often caused us to weep and listen to the voice of liberty which speaks in the hearts of us all. The rebellion of August 1791 would eventually ripen into the full-fledged Haitian Revolution, lead to the liberation of the African Haitian people, to the establishment of the Haiti Republic, and the end of the dreams of Napoleon for a French-American empire in the West. Two centuries before the revolution, when the island was called Santo Domingo by the Spanish Empire, Historian Antonio de Herrera would say of the place, quote, There is so many Negroes in this island as a result of the sugar factories that the land seems an effigy or an image of Ethiopia itself, Haiti was the principal source of wealth for the French bourgeoisie. In the decade before the Buchmann Rebellion, an estimated 29,000 African captives were imported to the island annually. Conditions were so brutal and the work was so backbreaking that the average African survived only seven years in horrific sugar factories. In eighteen oh four, Haiti declared independence after defeating what was the most powerful army of the day, the Grand Army of France. Haiti's founding father, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, at the Haitian Declaration of Independence proclaimed, quote, I have given the French cannibals blood for blood i have avenged america with their liberation haitians changed history for among their accomplishments one it was the first independent nation in latin america two it became the second independent nation in the western hemisphere three it was the first black republic in the modern world and four it was the only incidence in world history of an enslaved people breaking their chains and defeating a powerful colonial force using military might. What did independence bring? It brought the enmity and anger of the Americans, who refused to recognize their southern neighbor for 58 years. In the words of South Carolina Senator Robert Haine, the reasons for U.S. non-recognition were clear. He said, Our policy with regard to Haiti is plain. We never can acknowledge her independence. The peace and safety of a large portion of our union forbids us even to discuss it. In many ways, Black August, at least in the West, begins in Haiti. There's the blackest August possible, revolution, and resultant liberation from bondage. For many years, Haiti tried to pass the torch of liberty to all of her neighbors providing support for simon bolivar in his nationalist movements against spain indeed from its earliest days haiti was declared an asylum for escaped slaves and a place of refuge for any person of african or american indian descent on january 1 1804 president dessalines would proclaim never again shall colonist or european set foot on this soil as master or landowner This shall henceforward be the foundation of our constitution. It would be U.S., not European imperialism, that would consign the Haitian people to the cruel reign of dictators. The U.S. would occupy Haiti and impose their own rules and dictates. After their long and hated occupation, Haitian anthropologist Ralph Trouillot would say, it improved nothing and complicated almost everything. Yet, that imperial occupation does not wipe out the historical accomplishments of Haiti. During the darkest nights of American bondage, millions of Africans in America, in Brazil, in Cuba, and beyond, could look to Haiti and dream. For Black August, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are produced by Noel Hanrahan for Prison Radio.
0: Again, that's a commentary from political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal, free Mumia and all political prisoners. And, you know, for those who may not be aware, uh, the Haitian Revolution actually kicked off in August of 1791. And I mean, there's just so much there. There was a lot of rich History and analysis that Mumia got into there, Jackie, uh, speaking of the Haitian Revolution and uh, how we can uh, connect it to our struggle today. But you're talking about a people that dared to struggle. And this revolution itself emanated out of what? African spirituality. We were just talking about this the other day in our conversation about P Valley, right? So they very clearly understood their political situation and they did not attempt to separate their political selves from their spiritual selves. Indeed, they understood that that was impossible and beyond that, actually quite contrary to who they are because you can't compartmentalize these aspects of yourself, right? These are some of the lessons that I think that we can take. And we also know that Haiti is a country that from the time of the triumph of its revolution in 1804, it has been ruthlessly punished and attacked by some of the most powerful governments on this planet, not the least of which the United States, but also France, also others. You know what I mean? And so even with that, Haiti continues to fight to this very day. We talk about it on this show about how those people are struggling and fighting literally for their lives. For a kind of democracy that they define, not a definition of democracy that comes from the halls of power in Washington or Paris or or London or any of the major Western metropoles. Right. And they absolutely refuse to be crushed. And so that, to me, connects directly to the spirit of Black August. Because if we remove struggle from that concept, well, then it becomes something else entirely. And in fact, I would argue that it loses all meaning. And so when we hear this coming from Mumia Abu-Jamal, another fighter, another person who continues to make contributions even under the most inhuman of conditions. We were just talking about Albert Woodfox, who organized and fought against uh, injustice and sexual abuse and racism inside prison. People are organizing and fighting and educating and writing and publishing commentaries in a place where... Their very life is supposed to be snuffed out. Everything that animates a human being is supposed to be squeezed out of you under these conditions. And yet, they fight on. And so, Jackie, as the Haitian Revolution, only just one example of a lot of incidents and examples of struggle that we could point to in the month of August and under Black August. (laughs) I think above all else, it shows that when you dare to struggle, you dare to win. And that even when you win, sometimes you still face attacks and repression. And all that means is you got to keep fighting.
1: That's absolutely the truth. And the other point that Momia Abu-Jamal raised in that commentary, which I always love to listen to during Black August, is that strain of solidarity. That that he made very clear it was, you know, it was certainly, you know, the the Africans on uh, the island of Haiti, but it was also uh, their solidarity with uh, indigenous people. And if you read more of his uh, commentaries, you will read how he connects the history of the struggle uh, on Haiti with the history of the struggle in the Americas, uh, the Nat Turner Rebellion, the Seminole Wars, and uh, the the solidarity of uh, 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 formerly enslaved Africans who escaped and joined Native Americans in uh, uh, free communities in the swamps, who fought against uh, the you know U.S. Army and slave catchers and such, and the the idea that. During Black August, the only thing we focus on is Black liberation, I think, is a mistake. That is a great mistake that we make, and it is a mistake that I don't know how we make if we're actually studying political prisoners, because every single one of them made the exact same connections to international solidarity in this struggle for liberation that I just said that Mamiya uh, Abu-Jamal made. International solidarity is the only way we can win our liberation. And by we, I do mean African people, but certainly all oppressed people around the world. So this is, I think, the other message that I am, I think I'm being, uh, it's being renewed for me. In this particular Black August, uh, that this is not just a struggle to free, uh, you know, African political prisoners, but we can never forget political prisoners like Leonard Peltier and others and political prisoners or political uh, exiles around the world that are uh, targets of U.S. imperialism who are fighting for their freedom in other places as well, so I I think that we are coalescing to a really fine point in getting this uh, struggle, this idea of what struggle for liberation really is. Because once again, as with everything else, all of this is coalescing uh, to this great. Uh, uh, tension, confrontation that we have to contend with. And I think we can win, Sean, but it is, as with everything else, it is going to be a struggle that's going to be kind of difficult for some folks to really commit fully to.
0: Absolutely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch TDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
3: By Any Means Necessary.
0: By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie LucMon. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 2521 two, five two one, one three, two zero. I am here. Jackie Lumont is here as we keep things rolling. And Jackie, given so much of what is happening in our uh, uh, political environment right now, and of course, uh, as we're saying, in Black August, I thought it was appropriate to uh, play a clip by none other than George Jackson, the guiding light of Black August, and indeed. The entire period of commemoration is based on him, his life, his work and his politics. And so I want to play a commentary by George Jackson, given his uh, uh, analysis on fascism. And while I don't necessarily agree with everything he said, I think he makes some very interesting points and some very substantive contributions uh, that I definitely want to
6: talk about. I begin with the idea that fascism has already taken over this country. It took over uh, uh, during the depression. and uh, all above ground political organizations has, has got to proceed. I mean, anything that's effective, that's really revolutionary, I'm convinced I'm convinced if it's really revolutionary, because of the existence of the fascist state, there's going to be there's going to be resistance to every move that we make. Consequently, it's going to take a lot of brain work, footwork to avoid the pitfalls and traps that that the fascists are going to set up for us. I'm convinced that fascism exists in this country, and uh, if you think about it a while, you understand that uh, one of the principal uh, cornerstones of fascism is disguised. There's two or three faces of fascism there the original thing where it begins as an almost uh, anti-establishment, uh, intellectualized uh, movement. Once it sees its power, its whole com- so complexion changes into uh, one of uh, terrorism, you know, the suppression of vanguard parties and demobilization of uh, the lower classes. Uh, when it goes into its third state, as it has done here in the United States, I'm convinced that the United States has taken fascism to its apex. And we're in the third state we live in the third states here in the united states and it's not necessary for the fascists to uh, uh perpetuate themselves to maintain themselves any longer with uh, out now out br- brutal force the impressions that we get from uh the movies and from the propaganda system that fascism is a uh, is a period of doors being kicked down and people being gunned down in concentration camps that's just the transitory Uh, period of uh, fascism once it's established itself and is in power securely then uh, the whole complexion of the movement changes altogether. they have been in control of uh, the mass uh, opinion molding machinery and uh, the upper classes have their governing elites to to affect their ideas and perpetuate themselves and uh, what was the essence of fascism, this kind of revolution. Any political, real opposition political uh, activity that's going to uh, uh, prevail after the fact of the emergence of the fascist state has to be uh, very, very subtle and has to be, it has to carry a, a threat, a latent threat. Uh, anything that we do that is really revolutionary is going to be contested. I can give you a thousand examples. I'm talking about the obituaries, the Panthers, and uh, all the others. I'm convinced that fascism exists in this country, and consequently, my political uh, approach to uh, antithesis after the establishment of the fact of fascism has to be a cultural revolutionary thing. We have too many convinced uh, Americans. Americanism is fascism in itself, right from the beginning. But we have too many convinced fascists in this country who are willing to uh, protect it to the death. How can we attack at the productive point? An attack, a simple, direct attack at the productive point, at the plant, it's absurd. Uh, The interest is fortified, it's been fortified. Uh, The opposition is well aware of Lenin. Very, very, very up on Lenin and very well, Mussolini, the architect of the first uh, successful fascist state, was at one time uh, a communist. And uh, who could possibly be the best architect of a counter-positive mobilization of uh, of people's movements and a fascist, a guy who's been trained all, I mean, uh, a communist, a guy who's been trained all his life in the scientific methods of uh, socialist organization. Uh, They're up on us. They know about our old ways of organizing. And then, uh, you know, after the war, the the consumer's market, the cornucopia of uh, cheap uh, mass-produced, the flea market, That's part of the continuing uh, basis of compromise. Uh, Some people's demands are being met, see? And they're convinced that the American way is the right way. Uh, As fascism emerged and advanced and and took hold, it became impossible for us to use old methods. They're up on many. I'm convinced that... uh, from here, where we stand right now, the only way to advance revolutionary consciousness or reestablish the feeling of a uh, community, reestablish our, uh, our class consciousness, is to uh, create revolutionary culture. I, I, I believe in the commune, the ideal of the central city communes. And uh, through the communes, uh, as we fill in vacuums at the power elite, the governing elite and the upper classes have, uh, have left as we fill in these vacuums and give people something to hold, something to defend. As we extend our programs, as we extend our programs into significant areas uh, attacking uh, property relations, we'll, we'll be striking two blows at one time. We'll, we'll be re-educating, as you emphasize, we'll be re-educating and we'll be preparing the people. To uh, defend themselves, this is the old thing about the people aren't ready. Now that's a—it's a presuming that the people aren't uh, aren't willing, or capable, or, or have enough uh, brain power. You know, if they haven't the uh, thought capacity to act in their own defense. And uh, we counteract this by giving them something to defend, something to hold. And as our programs extend into the significant areas of uh property rights enjoyed by the fascists then we'll be moving into military activity uh, for an, exa- an example i'll give you a brief example what the hell what the hell what uses a rent strike if we allow the pigs to move in and beat everybody up and set them out on the street you dig? you know what i'm saying uh it's uh, very simple to uh convince the people with our political elements that they should withhold uh, their rent as a positive material gain for them to uh, go along with the program but we make no advance whatsoever in revolutionary consciousness and class consciousness rebuilding of class consciousness after the fact of of, uh, fascism uh, it means that we have to first reestablish class consciousness uh, revolutionary consciousness or whatever you choose to call it Uh, we have to reestablish the sense of community fascism destroys the sense of community and, uh, you know, among the lower classes. And in the upper classes, uh, they uh, strengthen their sense of community. The so termed uh, diversification of stock ownership. Uh, well, what it did actually was create a great community of interest among the uh, upper classes. They um, are no longer interested in the survival of their one individual. Concern, affirm, uh, fascism means that this upper class is, is, is now concerned with the general survival of the whole business system. This is a business based elite, a business based upper class. And uh, they no longer compete with each other. They have a great community of interest. We have to establish a community of interest of our own from the bottom. Consequently, uh, that means. Uh, uh, Advancing along a a cultural, revolutionary, communal form. And uh, it makes a great deal of sense what uh, Huey Newton and the brothers are saying. We have to prove to the world and to this country and to the fans that the concentration camp technique will not work on us. That's our whole job right now. Later on, once out, uh, it'll be a little different.
0: Jackie Lukman, a lot there. Your thoughts?
1: a whole lot there. I mean, I think I, I was stuck when he, he said, uh, you know, that fascism is, or the first phase of fascism is, uh, anti-establishment and intellectualism. And I immediately thought of like the, the twin uh, realities of Donald Trump and Jordan Peterson. Like obviously Trump is the, uh, uh, is the embodiment of the, um, Uh, anti-establishment kind of uh, idea that most people have when they think about uh, fascism. Uh, Interestingly enough, they don't think about anybody who is who is on the liberal end. Uh, But certainly every Democrat who is uh, basically demanding that people not believe what they are seeing in uh, Ukraine with the fact that Ukraine is literally losing this war to Russia and uh, Russia was not the aggressor here. Don't believe your lying eyes. They are also representatives of the uh, 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 anti uh, um, uh, or or the the lack of intellectualism that is a part of that anti-establishment ideal that I think uh, uh, George Jackson was talking about. But then this other part that I was thinking about the way that the idea that Americanism, nationalism, white supremacy has been wrapped up in this neat little intellectual package, it's been made and presented in a very presentable way by folks like Jordan Peterson, uh, reshaping white supremacy uh, into this thing called Western chauvinism that makes it more acceptable to talk about Uh, You know, in in public universities and those kind of places without actually saying racist things. (laughs) Right. And and saying that we want to get rid of all of the undesirables. But you frame it in these things, these ideas wrapped around this thing called Western chauvinism, which really is Propping up the idea that Western civilization was created by Europeans and anything that was not created by Europeans is garbage and it should be thrown in the trash. So, I mean, even then, you know, George Jackson in his brilliance really captured the essence of, I think, the first phase of fascism in this country, although I do disagree with him. Uh, That I don't think the U.S. reached its apex of fascism in the 70s when that recording took place. I think it's actually right now, Sean. Yeah, you know, it's
0: so funny. I I never thought uh, Jordan Peterson would be mentioned on this show, but it's absolutely appropriate. And I think you're correct, Jackie. And I just got to say, he's out here looking bad. Dad. Like, I don't know what he's going through, yeah. or what kind of lifestyle uh, he I think I read somewhere that he eats like a raw meat diet or, or something. It's just very, uh, a very odd thing. And yet, like legions of white boys online look to him as their lord and savior. You know, Jordan Peterson is basically like the white Kevin Samuels. But yeah, you know, Jackie, what you're saying is is is, is so true. And I, too, have a, a kind of critique of how uh, Jackson grapples with uh, 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 fascism. And I wanted to read a little bit from this piece on a uh, liberation dot org uh, called George Jackson's blood in my eye, a critical appraisal. If folks will bear with me for for just a moment because this gets right at what I'm thinking. It says Jackson's position was a direct challenge to sectors of the U.S. left that took the position that since the U.S. state is not fascist, it can be reformed and made to serve the needs of the poor and the oppressed. But if the left could be won over to embrace the conclusion that the U.S. is fascist, then the only conclusion is that it would have to be overthrown and replaced. However, the state does not have to be fascist to require smashing and replacing. The U.S. Constitution was created to ensure that state power forever remain in hands of the 1% operating behind a democratic facade. For example, senators were not voted on for the first 125 years of the country through the 17th Amendment. The idea of the Senate was to create a safety valve to ensure that the ruling class's monopoly on state power was never threatened. That is, the Senate has ultimate veto power over any law passed by the popularly elected House of Representatives. In this way, the ruling class's power was not only pooled, but it was also protected or safeguarded from the democratic will of the masses. Jackson himself commented that in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, quote, the work of framing the new nation's constitutions proceeded with 55 persons and only two were not employers. Although senators are elected today through a variety of mechanisms, including the Electoral College, a relic of slavery, the capitalist ruling class has safeguards to ensure that the system will never cease to serve the interests of its class. There is an important difference between a state with fascistic leanings and outright fascism marked by the denial or suspension of all bourgeois democratic rights such as the freedom of political expression and assembly, the right to unionize, the right to vote, etc. Capitalists tend to prefer to rule through a democratic facade as a more effective approach of social control than ruling through naked, open violence. However, there is not always unanimous consensus amongst the political establishment. For example, the January 6 2021 fascist coup attempt in D.C. included high-ranking military officers and Republican Party officials in the conspiracy. In response, Liberation News wrote, quote, In general, the U.S. ruling class prefers a democratic form of the stability of bourgeois rule. They oppose Trump as a destabilizer and disruptor to their system, end quote. As fascistic forces gain momentum in the U.S., effectively fighting back against them will require at the bare minimum a correct assessment of the enemy and its state formation. And again, that's George Jackson's Blood in My Eye, a critical appraisal, which folks can read in its entirety at liberationschool.org. Fascistic leanings, not the same as outright fascism, right? Now, Jackson is absolutely correct when he talks about how this state, this system, cannot be reformed. There's nothing benevolent are good to be found in it. But how have we seen these fascistic leanings show up recently here in the United States? We've saw it with the recent uh, FBI raid on the Yuhuru's. We saw it. That's right. Uh, with the, the state attacks on pro-abortion protests, particularly at the Arizona state house where people were shot with tear gas, people were tear gassed simply for advocating and fighting actually for women's liberation and reproductive justice. We absolutely saw it in 2020 during the George Floyd uprisings, right? And another thing that Jackson was so right about here, and it's, it's funny, he sounded, <laughs> I feel him, because he sounded disgusted at this, at this idea of, oh, the people aren't ready. Listen, mm-hmm. consciousness changes quickly. We've seen it. I just mentioned George Floyd, right? So one fine day in the United States, while if memory serves, we we're all under quarantine because of the machinations of this system, uh, which by which I mean the refusal to protect us under COVID, uh, there was no struggle against racist police tear in the streets. Next thing you know, millions of people flooded the streets of this country, right? Because the same system that abandoned them under COVID is the same one that killed George Floyd, that killed Mike Brown, that killed Breonna Taylor, that has killed so many. There's an old song that asks the question, how many thousands gone? How many people have we lost to this soul-breaking, life-taking system? And see, this is what we mean by raising consciousness. And this is why we have to stay in the streets and stay in the struggle. I wish we had more time to talk about this. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
3: By Any Means Necessary.